0: To check the locks podcast as always i'm john connor
1: i'm olivia cornu
0: saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case before we get started as always olivia it's wonderful to see you how are you how has your week been
1: my week's been pretty good back to the work grind pretty sleepy tonight but i'm happy to be here how are you
0: i am doing well i am sleepy as well we are starting this recording session the current time is 11 p.m central so we're getting a late start But we're here. I'm excited to do the dang thing. Excited to jump into it. And you actually brought a doozy. I was going through the notes. It looks like it's going to be a longer one. I'm excited about it. So I don't know. What do you say? Should we just jump into it?
1: This week, we're headed to San Francisco, California in May of 1998. On a clear spring evening, 36-year-old Lisa Valdez hosted a dinner party for her mother Helen's boyfriend. Several guests were in attendance and the party was a hit. Helen stayed behind to help her daughter clean up after all the guests had left. She then left Lisa's apartment around midnight the morning of Sunday, May 17th. Lisa Valdez lived in a very small studio in the Diamond Heights apartment complex. But she did have a million-dollar view of the city. She was a software programmer in San Francisco. She was adventurous and full of life. Lisa enjoyed going to dance classes with her friends, and she was always full of energy. Her smile and her long brown hair could light up any room she walked in. Lisa and her mother, Helen, were very, very close. Their relationship was that of mother-daughter, but they were also best friends. Lisa shared everything with her mom, and they spoke frequently on the phone. Sounds like somebody I know. You talk to your mom a lot. (laughs) All the time. Yep. Every morning. Shout out, Trish. Shout out. Now, the next morning, Sunday, May 17th, Helen tried to call Lisa, but she could not get an answer. Two days had passed, and Helen still had not heard from Lisa, and this was very odd behavior for her. Now, on Wednesday, May 20th, 1998, Helen received a call from Lisa's company. They informed her that she had not shown up for work in the last few days. This immediately worried Helen. It was then that she drove to Lisa's Diamond Heights apartment. But to Helen's shock, it was secured by caution tape and several police officers. Just shortly before Helen's frightening call, a neighbor had notified the apartment manager that there was a foul odor coming from apartment 307 and around 11.50 a.m., the apartment manager went to investigate the smell. When he arrived, he noticed the door was unlocked. As he entered the unit, he saw a mostly naked female body lying right in front of the door. The manager immediately called 911, and Helen was told by police that Lisa was dead. Tom Valdez, Lisa's brother, was in total shock when he heard the news. Detectives Ronan Shudice and Pam Hofsass quickly began searching the apartment. Shudice described the crime scene as gruesome. He recalled the foul odor that met him when he reached the third floor of the apartment complex. It was a smell he knew too well, the stench of human decomposition. As he walked into Lisa's tiny apartment, he noticed her body on the floor. She was lying at the foot of her Murphy bed that was close to her door. Now, remember, she lives in a studio, John. So like when you look at the crime scene photos, it's basically you walk in the front door. Her bed is laid down. It's not very big.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was thinking, too, when you were talking about her throwing a dinner party with friends, all these people. I was like, man, a studio, that's got to be hard to do. But I'm sure, especially in San Francisco, you're paying for the view. You're not really paying for the space. Yeah. I've had friends who've lived in studios and it's like everything is right there. The kitchen, the bed, it's mm-hmm. all you, know, you walk in and it's right in front of you. That's so it. it made a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah.
1: Now, there was blood splattered everywhere and the apartment was in slight disarray. Oddly, though, her thermostat was set at 80 degrees, and this temperature caused Lisa's body to quickly begin decomposing, leaving police to find her in a state of advanced decomposition. The scene looked as if a violent struggle had occurred, and detectives noticed several stab wounds to her body. Lisa's underwear were torn and bloody, and she was naked from the waist down, suggesting a sexual assault had occurred. The autopsy results would later reveal that Lisa had been stabbed 21 times to the face, neck, and chest and three of the 21 stab wounds penetrated the carotid artery. This caused rapid blood loss, leading pathologists to believe that she died within seconds to minutes. Forensics could not determine an exact time of death given the severe decomposed state of her body, but they did notice that Lisa had defensive injuries on her hands. And as detectives continued searching the crime scene, they started to notice a few unusual things. First was that it appeared that several inches of Lisa's hair had been cut off. Pictures and family confirmed that Lisa's hair was usually all the way down to the back of her knees. But when her body was discovered, her hair had been cut to her shoulders.
0: That's so weird that the hair would be cut like that. You know, I know serial killers keep trophies, but I had a lady in my neighborhood growing up who her hair was long like that. And it just seemed like so much work. You know what I mean? If you're going to cut someone's hair from the shoulders down to, you know, the back of their knees, you're leaving with like three feet of hair. You know what I mean? That's. A lot to just like cut and take with you. So sorry. I know it's like sidetracking a little bit, but when you said that, I was like.
1: Yeah, it was odd. And it took them a minute. Basically, when they were investigating, her body stayed in the apartment for quite some time. And they talked about like when you're studying a crime scene, how you get to know the victim. And so you start to see things that happen in the routine. And, you know, they would have, they said they would have never thought about it had they've not seen pictures and talked to family and people talked about like her brown hair and just how long it was and everything. So when they realized that it was short, they're like, what in the world?
0: Yeah. And I'm sure when your hair is long like that, like if you're someone who keeps your hair long like that, like that's almost like a prideful thing. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I remember being young and having hair down to my shoulders and I was like, I ah, love my hair you know what i mean and I'm i can't am going to need to see a
1: picture of that
0: oh i'll i'll send i'll send you one i don't have I'll any one to post
1: that in the Facebook group
0: oh no i don't want to embarrass myself like that but
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah i was a handsome man back in the day i used to use a hair straightener so <laughs> yeah cuz my hair gets just curly it gets long and curly so when i could grow it out so i'd have to straighten it which is probably why i can't grow it out anymore <laughs> it's all <laughs> falling out of my head so
1: fried
0: But anyway, I digress. Back to the story.
1: Yes. Additionally, a white envelope filled with cash was taped to the back of her front door. But the family confirmed that Lisa's housekeeper would come every Monday morning around 10 a.m. and Lisa would leave the envelope taped to the door with her payment. Police knew they needed to find out who would do such a thing to Lisa. So they began canvassing the area and talking with neighbors and those closest to her. Fellow residents of the Diamond Heights complex were terrified. They could not understand how someone could have gotten in. The apartment complex was heavily secured and it was difficult for anyone just to get into the complex without knowing someone. Guests would have to call from the main intercom and be buzzed in. So this meant that whoever murdered Lisa had to be voluntarily let in. Their suspect would have taken the elevator to the third floor and walked across two long corridors before reaching Lisa's apartment. One neighbor that lived below Lisa told detectives that they remembered hearing loud thumping from the apartment above them around 1.30 in the morning on Sunday. This would have been roughly an hour and a half after Helen had left her daughter's home the night of the dinner party. Now, the police did not believe that she had been robbed. There were no signs of forced entry, so this suggested that Lisa let her killer in. And additionally, her purse and jewelry was still in her apartment, and nothing seemed to be missing. This prompted police to start questioning all the dinner party guests and her housekeeper. When speaking to detectives, the housekeeper told them that she went to apartment 307 on Monday, May 18th at 10 a.m., just like she normally would. She recalled opening the door and briefly saw a naked body on the floor and hearing a male's voice. She quickly shut the door, believing that she accidentally walked in on an intimate moment between Lisa and a male friend. That's when she shut the door and left.
0: Have you ever done that before? What? shown up somewhere and like walked in and found somebody on the floor because I definitely have and nope. it was very awkward.
1: <laughs> no. Can you elaborate?
0: <laughs> yeah. So I had a friend who was dating this girl uh shortly after I graduated high school and her mom had a little like for the drinky drinky. So it was a house that everybody could go to and she just never cared that there was a bunch of people there, you know? Yeah. And the door was always open. So we would just show up. We knew it was a safe place to like go and do stuff that we weren't supposed to do. So
1: yeah, we all had that house. Yeah.
0: Even if nobody was there, you would just, you know, open the door, go inside. So one night I showed up and I saw like the lights were on and stuff and I was like, oh, everybody's hanging out. And I open the door and walk in and there is a gentleman laying on the floor and she is on top in the living room oh like my- as soon as you open the door. And she's like, get out. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So when you're talking about that, I really felt for the housekeeper because it is, uh, it's, you know, it's not a comfortable situation to be in. So I can only imagine how she felt. But
1: Yeah, I can't think that's ever happened to me. I feel like I'd remember that.
0: It was not great. (laughs) Not great at all. But again, I digress. Let's get back to the story.
1: So this led detectives to believe that Lisa was killed closer to Sunday morning when the neighbors heard the thumping. And this suggested that the killer may have stayed around after Lisa was killed. Now, another thing that caught detectives' eye was that in Lisa's bathroom, the toilet seat had been left up. This indicated that a male had used the bathroom last. Detectives were able to lift a fingerprint from the rim of the seat. And they also collected a blood-soaked pillowcase from Lisa's room. When tested, the DNA was shown to be from an unidentified male. Police questioned and obtained DNA samples from all the party guests, but to their disappointment, there was no match. With no real leads, police decided to question family and friends about any possible romantic relationships that Lisa may have been in. Her mother, Helen, told detectives that she knew Lisa was planning to go on a date with someone named Alberto Cato. In fact, this date was supposed to take place after the dinner party, which would have been Sunday, May 17th. Police quickly brought Alberto in for questioning and obtained a DNA sample. They also noticed that Alberto had a jagged cut on his hand. And given how brutal the crime scene was, police felt strongly that Alberto Cato was involved in the murder of Lisa Valdez. Cato told police that he actually canceled the date and ended up going out with his friends until 3 a.m. He agreed to take a polygraph test, and one week later, around May 28th, the results led police to believe he was lying. That was until June 5th when the DNA results came back, and Alberto Cato was not a match. Again, with no leads, detectives continued to look at evidence collected from Lisa's apartment. Now, back in 1998, people used answering machines. Do you happen to remember your, your answering machine growing up?
0: I do remember answering machines. I was a little too young to get to play with them what? in that time. Like, it was one of those things where it was like, you don't touch the answering machine. My parents would record it or whatever. We didn't touch oh, it. Oh,
1: you didn't get to record it?
0: No. And then shortly after it moved to the digital voicemail, you know what I mean? Like, it was even, like you
1: called in and got your voicemails.
0: Yeah. You could even do it on your landline. I remember back mm-hmm. in the day, but I remember it was just sitting by the phone. I have very vague mm-hmm. memories of it, but yeah, we were never allowed to touch it. And I get so jealous because I've heard stories of people being like, yeah, we put music on it. Like you turn the music down. And you're like, hey, sorry, not home right now. Leave a message after the beep. And then you like turn your favorite song back up. I just never was allowed to touch it. So
1: you would have been your radio DJ self before you would have even known that's what you were going to do if you would have had an answering machine.
0: I'm like, thank you for calling John's house. I am not here to answer your call.
1: <laughs> Sound <Something> like that. <laughs> Well, anyways, detectives listened through several of her messages, and a few were from unknown callers early Sunday morning. But one message in particular caught their attention. The 19th message simply asked if she was home. After questioning co-workers, they were able to identify the voice belonging to Albert Robinson. So not Alberto Cato, but Albert Robinson. So two different people, very similar names.
0: That's a lot of Albert.
1: Yeah, so Robinson was a co-worker and a longtime acquaintance of Lisa's. Colleagues would describe Robinson as an odd guy, and they knew for a fact that he and Lisa were not romantically involved. But when questioned, he told police that he and Lisa were in love. According to Robinson, they were planning to get married and raise a family. Police were torn on who to believe, but that would change on June 28th. Lisa's family held a memorial service in her honor, and in attendance was none other than Albert Robinson, At the memorial, he handed out letters and told everyone how in love the pair was. This raised some serious red flags to Lisa's friends and family. Robinson continued to deny any involvement in her murder and claimed he loved her so much he could not and would not hurt Lisa. But he had no clear alibi, but he did agree to take two polygraph tests, and these results came back inconclusive. Then detectives finally obtained a search warrant for Robinson's house, and what they found was shocking. Photos of Lisa lined the walls of his home. It appeared that he was obsessed with Lisa. They knew that this had to be their killer. Again, DNA and fingerprints were sent for testing, but sadly, not a match. At this point, the police had no more leads. Lisa Valdez's family was devastated, and her case went cold. Family and friends still could not understand who would want to kill Lisa. For the next 10 years, detectives Pam Hofsass and Ronan Shudice would keep Lisa's case close to their mind. And every few years, both would run fingerprints and DNA through the database, hoping for a match. They could not fathom that someone could murder a young female so violently and never show up in their database.
0: I have to imagine that as a detective, you are probably so frustrated, especially when you find someone who's like, we were in love and we're going to get married. And it's like these delusions Mm-hmm. And then you go to their house and you're like, oh, yeah, there's pictures Duh. of this person all over. Like, we've got our guy. And then. This is
1: like The Perfect Stranger. Did you ever watch that movie?
0: No. Is that the one you ask me about all the time?
1: Yes. With Halle Berry <laughs> and Giovanni Rusby or whatever his name roast is. Rose Beef.
0: Giovanni Rospi,
1: Beef. <laughs> Giovanni Rose
0: Robisi. Yes, I know who you're talking about.
1: you got to watch this movie.
0: But I just, I'm like. I know I've got my guy. Like all the evidence is literally plastered here on the wall, like obsessed stalker. And then you get everything back and you're like, what? You know? And that's two people. Like one two. guy's got the cut on his hand. Like yeah. all right, defensive Coincidence. wounds. Yeah. That's crazy. I just, I can't imagine being so confident in something and being like, I know this, is the guy and then finding out that it's not, it's gotta be super frustrating.
1: Yeah. And as I was researching it, I was like, this is like, this is it. This is it. And then it was like, nope. And they tested another one. This is it. Nope, not that one either. Right. But now in 2010, uh, Detective HofSAFs took a whole year to put together a search warrant for familial DNA. So familial DNA is basically, you know, we talk about these ancestry DNAs. So kind of in 2010 is when that became available for detectives to use for DNA matching. Hofsass planned to run the DNA through the new technology. On September 2nd, 2011, she received a call from the state lab. They told Hofsass that before they could do a familial DNA search, they were required to do a full CODIS search, and that they wouldn't be doing a familial search because they actually had a positive hit during their CODIS system. Additionally, all the DNA markers completely matched those found on the pillowcase and the fingerprints on the toilet seat. It all pointed to one man, 52-year-old Anthony Quinn Hughes. In fact, the fingerprint from the toilet seat was from Hughes' right middle finger. Now, Anthony Hughes had a lengthy criminal record. However, he had never committed a crime that required DNA sampling. That is, until he was arrested in 2010 for shoplifting. Now, a fun fact. Around 2004, California changed their laws for nonviolent felons in DNA sampling. This was Proposition 69, which expanded the criminal offenses that would qualify for police to collect DNA samples and palm prints with these lesser crimes. So basically, this Proposition 69 said that anybody who commits these lesser crimes should still be required to submit sampling of DNA and fingerprints.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you are someone with a history of theft or something of that nature, you know, if you're committing grand larceny or something like that, if I find your handprint there, I have it in the system, right? Or if I find you know, a hair or something like that, I can tie it back and be like, you did this. So
1: it makes sense. Yeah, so because of this change that was implemented, when Hughes was arrested for shoplifting, he had to give his DNA and his fingerprints. So on September 10th, 2011, an arrest warrant was issued for Anthony Hughes for the 1998 murder of Lisa Valdez. Detectives didn't have a known address for Hughes, so they showed his mugshot around places he was known to frequent. Police also questioned Lisa's family on her connection with Hughes. Friends remembered Lisa dating someone named Huggy when she was 14 years old, and detectives believed that this could in fact be Hughes. Several hours later, police caught a break. They spotted Anthony Hughes jaywalking right in front of their car and immediately arrested him. He was brought in for questioning with Hofsass and Dice. The interrogation began asking about who Hughes was and his history. They also inquired about where he was in 1998 and what jobs he was doing at that time. Now, the detectives would later show Hughes a picture of Lisa and ask if he had seen her. He quickly told them no. But when the picture was brought to him a second time, he told detectives that they dated in high school. According to Hughes, he and Lisa had met at a house party when they were kids and only were romantic when they were young. He told police that he recalled last seeing Valdez in the late 1980s. But investigators continued to dive deeper into his feelings for Lisa. Hughes shared a story with detectives about a time in the late 80s when he went to Lisa's room in college. And according to Hughes, she had bragged that she had just had sex with six guys. He told police that it made him very angry and he didn't understand why she would tell him that. In fact, he was disgusted by her. Hughes claimed that after that incident, he never wanted to see or speak with Lisa again. Now, this angry and passionate demeanor was very noticeable to detectives. The interrogation continued, and Hofsass and Schudeis told Hughes that his DNA had been found in her apartment back in May of 1998. He said he didn't remember being in her apartment in the 90s. But when police told Hughes that Valdez was dead, he asked for a pen and paper. They finally felt that Anthony Hughes was about to write his confession down. But when they handed him the pen, he suddenly began stabbing himself in the neck and stomach, repeatedly saying, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. Now, police did not have a confession, but they felt that no innocent man would behave in that manner. Friends could not figure out the connection between Hughes and Valdez. It had been decades since the pair saw one another, and there was no motive. But the police began to formulate their theory. They believed that the two ran into each other in May of 1998. Hughes then visited Lisa's apartment where she knowingly let him in. And it was then that detectives believe Hughes killed Lisa in a rage of passion. Hughes was arrested and charged with attempted rape and murder. Now we're going way forward to December 2015, 17 years after the brutal murder of Lisa Valdez.
0: And this is five years after he was uh, arrested because he was arrested in 2010, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. And they actually had a four-year delay, but Anthony Quinn Hughes' trial would begin on that day in December. Given the strong DNA evidence, Hughes was convicted of first-degree murder. However, a mistrial was declared on the charge of attempted rape. And when the defense filed for a new trial, the judge reduced his conviction to second-degree murder. Anthony Quinn Hughes was sentenced to 16 years to life in prison. He currently remains incarcerated at the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton. He's actually eligible for parole next year in 2024. And as for Lisa's family and friends, they finally feel some peace knowing that her killer is behind bars. But they continue to struggle with the loss of their beloved Lisa, even decades later. Now, there are two pieces of evidence that detectives later felt could have found Hughes years sooner. Now, John, remember when they were going through the answering machine and going through all of the messages, and that's how they came across Albert Robinson's message?
0: Yes, that was the one that asked if she was
1: home, right? Yes. So that was the 19th message on the machine. Well, if they would have continued looking through their list and not being stuck on Robinson, they would have found that message 22 was from Anthony Hughes. And he actually called Lisa after she was murdered.
0: That's crazy. I think it speaks to kind of what we were talking about before, that tunnel vision, Mm -hmm. where you're like, this is my guy. I know this is my guy. And you get so focused in on it that you don't go back and revisit it. And I think we saw that in the case of Alberto Cato, and then we saw it again with Albert Robinson, you know, and that that might be part of the reason that it took so long to get to Anthony Hughes, but to those detectives' credit, they never let go of the case, you know what I mean? Oh, no,
1: they kept searching years. They would say years would go by and they would submit the DNA and they would submit the fingerprints. But there was actually 40 messages listed on the list, and when you go back, they stopped at 19, went through that investigation, and then message 22 was actually from Hughes. And then the other thing is that detectives later realized that Lisa had an old contact in her address book for Anthony Hughes and that Anthony Hughes and Huggy were indeed the same person.
0: Like, again, it's got to be so frustrating because I can't imagine, you know, this happens in 1998 and then you get your break in 2010. Mm
1: -hmm. And then
0: after the trial and everything like that, you're like, oh, yeah, his name was right here. His voice Mm -hmm. was on this machine. It just took us all of this time to kind of follow the breadcrumbs to get there, you know. So I'm sure there's a sense of like, yes, I finally got this person. They're behind bars. It took me 12 years to get that arrest. But then there's also the other parts like I could have got him sooner. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. But the good news is, is they got him and he is behind bars. And I'm interested to see if he actually I doubt he would get parole, but we'll see. We'll have to follow this up and remember next year and kind of keep tabs on it.
0: Yeah, we definitely will. It's a super interesting story. And there's just so many twists and turns through it throughout the year. You know me. I'm a sucker for the ones where it's like, you know, I call them the country back roads where it's a lot of twists and turns and there's a lot of different things that happen. Mm-hmm. And I think you touched on that when you were talking about research and you're like, oh, they got him." Wait, no, that's not him. Yeah. Oh, they got him. No, that's oh, not. It's like, him. Oh, they
1: got him. I'm like, no, they didn't. I'm like, dang, like, what are the odds?
0: Yeah, I really like this one a lot. It was a really good story. And
1: well, the funny thing is, is I actually was researching something else and I ended up down this rabbit hole and I was like, oh, I thought I was researching the case that I was. And I was like, no, I'm not. This is totally, totally different. But it was a good case. It was interesting.
0: But I mean, thank heavens for those two detectives for sticking with it for over a decade, because I can only imagine if they didn't the questions, the hurt. That would still linger with Lisa's family and her mother. And it's got to feel good even though you've lost that loved one. and You're still struggling with that. It's got to be good to be able to say like we know exactly what happened. And we've got the right person.
1: Yeah. And apparently Helen had a really hard time after the murder. And took a long time if, if she's even ever recovered. But Lisa's brother Tom talked in an interview about how uh, devastated their mother was.
0: I can imagine. I know we're gonna talk about deadbolt tests, but any story where it's a parent who loses a kid, it hits me, it gets me in a way that a lot of other cases don't, you know? And so I immediately had sympathy for her and empathy for her and it's gotta be the end of your world, you know?
1: Yeah, very sad. So where do you stand? Where do you think you're gonna stand on this deadbolt test?
0: For me, I'm coming in at a seven. It's like you said, as you went through, this is a crime of passion, right? But I think the thing that makes it mark a little bit higher for me, is number one, the fact that a parent probably was like, I love you, thanks for having me to this party, I'll talk to you tomorrow the same way that we always do, and then you never talk to your kid again. You leave that interaction without realizing that this is the last time I'm gonna to talk to my child, and that realization afterward has to be horrifying. What would I have said if I would have known this was my last time? Would I have, I have given her a bigger hug? Something like that. So that definitely marks it up there for me. I think the other thing too is, the idea that I've bumped into somebody that I've known since I was a child and I most likely have this innate response to be like, I trust them. I've known them since I was a kid. We dated, obviously, like they had seen each other in college, stuff like that. She probably wasn't feeling that there was any threat to her safety. And mm-hmm. to me, that's like the like the lion, right? Like you're you're down in the tall grass. You're just waiting to, to strike. And that's the kind of vibe that I got. And obviously him stabbing himself with a pen and yelling, I want to die. I want to die. It does seem like there's possibly some mental health issues. Sounds like some maybe extreme guilt, but not enough so that, you know, you turned yourself in for what you did. You know what I mean? So it's just layered for me. There's a lot of moving parts, I think, that make it creepier than some of the other stuff that we've done.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to put it right there with you about a six. And my question is, is like, what if Helen would have left an hour and a half later? Would he have killed both of them? Would he have even, if he would have buzzed in, you know, they don't even know exactly how he got in there other than they think that she let him in. But what would have happened had her mom stayed later? There's just kind of like, what would have happened? Would he have killed both of them? Would he not have attempted? Would she have like shoot him away because her mom was still there?
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. It's like, would we have had two victims or could it have saved her life? And, you know, and I wonder if that's something that Helen has had to struggle with. Is like, oh man, if I just would have stayed a little bit longer, maybe I could have done something, you know? And I think survivor's guilt is a very real thing Mm
1: -hmm.
0: where it's like, why wasn't I there with her or like, could I have stopped it, something like that? And those kind of questions I think will drive you absolutely insane. So, I mean, from the parent perspective, I mean, the fact that she was able to carry on with her life at all in any capacity, I'm like praise to you. Cause I know we've talked about it before, but I'm like, I don't know if I could do it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I could either.
0: Well, Olivia, this was a a really interesting case. Love that you brought it. I know we started late, but I was on the edge of my seat. You know what I mean? Normally, sometimes when we're late, I'm like, okay, this is good, but like we're both tired. And this whole time I was like, tell me more. I want to know what's going on. So I loved it. Thank you for bringing this one. And And that is where we fall on the deadbolt test for this week. Olivia and I coming in about even, but we want to know where does the murder of Lisa Valdez fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know, reach out to us on Instagram and check the locks pod. You can find us on Twitter, at check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, come on, come hang out with us. We would love to get to know you. Love to spend some time with you. We're at almost 700 members in the Facebook group. And like that being our first year, I can't believe it. I'm just so grateful for everybody who's there. I I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way.
1: Oh, yeah. And when we hit 700, you're going to post that picture of you with long hair?
0: I will. When we hit 700, I will post a picture of me with ridiculous hair.
1: All right. Y'all here heard it first.
0: I may also be wearing an Argyle sweater. So... (laughs) Looking real fancy. Uh,
1: We'll cut you some slack. (laughs) We're at 684, so I need some people to join the Facebook group so I can see this picture.
0: (laughs) Yep. Well, Olivia, going through this case, I got to be honest, it just made me want to text my mom and be like, yo, I love you, but (laughs) I need a palate cleanser. You got a five-star review for us?
1: Yes, this week's five-star review comes from Nolan Skeeter. And I really hope that Nolan Skeeter is from Nolans. And if you're not, how did you come up with this name? But they said, Olivia, you rock. Okay, John, you rock too. All episodes are very (laughs) well-researched and informative. Got a shout out, John. You got a shout out.
0: I'll take it where I can get it. Sorry.
1: Keep up the excellent work of reporting interesting cases. I always look forward to new episodes. Gives me something to consider, especially when it hits close to home in my life. So, thank you, Nolan Skeeter. And I hope that that close to home in your life is because I've done cases close to your home in Nolan's. But let us know who you are and where you're from, and we'll send you some cool stuff. And thank you for the five star review.
0: I like to think that his name or her name or their name is just Nolan. Like, yep, yeah, my Nolan. parents' name, my names. I'm Nolan Skeeter, Nolan Skeeter. of the Massachusetts Skeeters. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but yes. Nolan Skeeter, thank you for taking time to leave that review. We talk about it every single week, but these reviews, they really help us, whether it's on the website or Apple podcast, when people find the show. They get to read what you think. It gets us into other shows, recommendations, things of that nature. So it really does help us more than we could ever tell you. So thank you for taking the time. And just like Olivia said, we would love to send you some stuff. We got stickers. We got magnets. We got buttons. We got all sorts of stuff. So reach out to us. Let us know. Again, you can find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're in our Facebook group, go ahead, drop us a line to DM there. We'd be happy to get it to you. If you're not a social person, that's not a problem at all head over to checkthelockspod.com, click that email button, reach out, let us know it's you. We will get some stuff sent out to you right away. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that?
1: Well, they need to hop on over to Apple Podcasts, go to our show's homepage, scroll all the way down where you see all five stars, click all five stars, and just leave us a little love. Tell us what you like about the podcast.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself. And you say it every week, so I don't have to. But yes, head over to Apple Podcasts, just like Olivia said. And if you need to, there is a cheat code in the show notes, the description of this episode. We would love to hear from you.
1: I also think this week I'm going to request a voicemail. Haven't had one in a long time. I love hearing people's voices. Send me a voicemail.
0: Yeah, we would love to hear your voices and hear what you think about the show. I will drop a link in the Facebook group, but you can't go to checktheloxpod.com. In the bottom right-hand corner, there's a little microphone. Click it right on your computer, right on your cell phone, however you want to do it. Leave us that message. We would love to hear your voice. It's so much fun. We, We haven't had one in a while. I'd love to play one. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Get signed up today. We got exclusive stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff just for being a patron. Plus, you get the episodes early and ad free. So if you like the show, you don't like commercials, that's the best way to do it. Again, we got a bunch of different tiers. So if you like what we do, you want to help us keep the lights on, that is the best way to do that. And if you can't financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening and hanging out with us every week means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, you're listening, you're hanging out, you're sharing the show with the people that you care about, friends, family, letting them know about check the locks. Just know that that means more to us than we could ever tell you. We appreciate the support. And again, that is how we are going to grow, get in front of more listeners, things of that nature. It's all grassroots with a little show like ours. So we really appreciate you sharing it with your friends. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you're subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to
1: Check the Locks. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.